As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, everyone, and welcome to So Very Wrong About Games, a board gaming podcast about board games. With me is my dear friend and co-host, Michael Walker. How are you doing, Walker? Hi, Mark. How's it going? I am very well, thanks. I am Mark Bigney, your other co-host. Walker, we are in the holidays of the French Republican calendar. Now, they don't call them holidays because they didn't want any association with the church whatsoever, so they are the Sans-Culottes. For those of you who know what a Sans-Culottes is, that's very appropriate. And very appropriately, today, the day of our filming this, is the Fête du Travail. The la- their Labor Day, and tomorrow, when most of you will be listening to this, it will be the Fête de l'Opinion, the Day of Opinion. Oh. How appropriate could you get? Very nice. We are, of course, French Republicans. We are not English Republicans. We take no st- position on our new head of state, Charles III. We are very studiously neutral with respect to those things, but when it comes to French Republicanism, this is an anti-Bourbon podcast. So... We're going to be talking about board games this week. We're going to talk about the games we played last week. We're going to talk about the news and why it doesn't matter. And then we are going to talk about our feature game, which is Capital Lux 2 Generations. So, Walker, what did you play last week? Mark, I got to play Tobago again. And why is that something? Because I got to play with the new expansion, Volcano. So, what does Volcano bring to the table, Mark? You put this giant... Volcano mostly destroys tables. <laughs> but this large, rather large... Uh, stony feeling volcano in the center of the, I'm sold already of the Tobago map and uh you get to put out lava through different means of, of gameplay and it allows you for those who play Tobago you're putting out these clues to different treasures and it'll say it can be next to something beside something in the biggest of something and it's going to narrow down where treasures are on this big sort of adventure type map and you go around and you pick them up and what the volcano does is it lets you break the rules. Normally, you when you play a card, you have to sort of narrow down where the treasure can be. But in these cases, you can play it where it doesn't do that, and it lets you play a volcano tile, and things happen. But long story short, 
My poor little buggy got surrounded by lava, so it couldn't move. <laughs> Uh-oh. Uh, this was by, you know, an awful player who's very mean. <laughs> Friend of the podcast. I'm not even going to say his name. It's so worm boy. I hate you so much. <laughs> um, well, look, we could use a, a euphemism even for the alias. Something like warm child or, I don't know, temperature boy. So this is designed by Bruce Allen and put out by Zoc Games. It was a great little addition, has leads to a lot more choices because the volcano, you sort of take uh, one of the six volcano tiles and you put it over your sort of wrong choice and that even narrows the field down further. So it gets the game moving. Really enjoy Tobago. Introduce a new player to it. They loved it very much. So you would suggest introducing Tobago or Tobago with the volcano expansion, even the new players? Yes, for sure, because it... Because lots of times, sometimes you're you're stuck with cards you can't play. Right. And it's a little frustrating, or, or maybe you don't understand, and you can always play a card down and, and use a volcano tile. It certainly sounds like, no pun intended, that it kind of blows up the decision space. Yes. Without necessarily smothering the player. Ugh. But no pun intended. No, no pun intended. Tash. <laughs> <laughs> I got to play Ascension Tactics, the miniatures deck building game. This is by Justin Gary and Ryan Sutherland. Uh, the provenance of Ascension to Ascension Tactics and all the various spin-off realms, games, and such is rather complicated and torturous, and we've been over that before. Ascension Tactics is basically putting a map and a hex grid to one of your more stripped-down deck-building exercises with some interesting twists, namely some one-shot treasures that you can pick up to buff your units, and the effect of instantaneous effects when some cards are purchased, which is kind of sort of like the Mercenaries effect of Shards Infinity, but not quite. I really enjoy Ascension Tactics, I, I, but I struggle with whether or not it's actually adding substantially to these stripped-down deck builders, especially when you consider how overproduced the miniatures version is. The retail edition, I suspect that I have much less problem with, because there are no miniatures in the retail edition. Instead, they're all chits. Smaller box, smaller fo- footprint, much more efficient, much more economical. I'm not really going to the ramparts over waste or anything, but all things being equal, when this is a stripped-down quick experience and you spend a lot of the time wrestling to, to try to find the right figure, especially since the insert wasn't especially well-designed, eh, there's a lot to be said for the benefit of switching to chits. Uh, but this is absolutely the kind of twist that a lot of people who are really, really into this kind of deck-building game might appreciate. But as I say, I get most of the satisfaction of a game of Ascension Tactics, the miniatures deck-building game, from a game of Shards Infinity or even... There are even some Ascension uh, expansions that I haven't tried that really tweaked the formula considerably. You know, the one about pirates has things about sailing, and the one about other weird thematic elements has other weird thematic elements, and you can go deep down the Ascension rabbit hole. So I'm not sure what you want is a large, almost coffin box-sized thing for what is fundamentally a quick deck-building game. I do like some of the solo modes, and I do like some of the tweaks on the formula, but at the end of the day, I, I, I wonder about the and added value proposition. So very enjoyable Ascension Tactics Minister's deck building game. Were I to do it over again, I'd probably get the retailer version. And I do appreciate the fact that there was some effort to put in additional scenarios and additional solo content. Yeah. So there is that. I'm definitely looking forward to getting back into it because there's like a whole cooperative mode with like sort of a campaign-y type system. And I'm going to be diving back into that because I too really enjoyed the gameplay of it. And that is Ascension Tactics, the Minister's deck building game. It's a long title. It is. Speaking of long titles, Uprising, Curse of the Last Emperor. This is also a solo plasticky game. 
These are sort of acrylic standees. I look, love those acrylic standees. They look very nice. I on think the it's table. the way of the future. I hope it's the way of the future. And I think we've sort of gone over the the hump of of learning. I don't want to say mastering, but getting on to uh, uprising because it was sort of a walk in the park, even upping the difficulty a little bit. Really, really, we wow. sort of you know manipulating the train, manipulating the monsters, rolling well, rolling. <laughs> that definitely definitely was a key. We, we weren't pretending that, you know, it was all of our tactics. I see. It was definitely the roles were once in our favor as opposed to being completely against us. And even the the sort of how the cards came up, because right off the start, some of the monsters appeared like right in, you know, my starting haven. So I didn't even have to go and get them. That could have, it could have been, it could have gone the other way. Right. Right. He could have destroyed everything. Like one lightning bolt roll, there's a lightning bolt you know, facing on one of the die. And when a monster, like a boss, rolls a lightning bolt, they do a special ability. Well, that, that is, after all, my fundamental complaint about Uprising Curse of the Last Emperor. You have these relatively small number of incredibly consequential early rolls that are winner-take-all complete obliteration. And if you lose your first combat, regardless of how well you prepare, you're kind of behind the eight ball and not much to do. It's true. And we did emphasize, we went very heavy on the archery, because if you can get the, the bosses down in the archery phase, then they're rolling a lot less dice, and maybe even some dice that don't have that lightning bolt symbol. True. Because in the case of this first boss, it would be one player loses one of their havens, which is your main base. That's terrible. And, and getting that in the first <laughs> turn would have been devastating. But like I said, because we went heavy into archers, he didn't even get to roll that die that had the lightning bolt. So it was very interesting way to start gaming out this system it's not really like the way i like to play mm -hmm. i like do it more like you know sort of like something more intuitively yeah like or you know theme orientated ah. or, you know just do things just for fun but it's a different way to play this is designed by cornelius kremen powell mazur and Derek summer and published by nemesis games yeah you're all in for the expansion content yep there's going to be a bunch more factions that you can play more enemies, more curse tokens. Mm. I, I, too, generally speaking, when playing a game like that, prefer to do things just for fun, which is why I never opened the box in the first place. I got to try Resist. Oh, I'm terribly sorry. We care about punctuation here it's at Soviet Realm. I played Resist! So this is by Trevor Benjamin, Roger Tankersley, and David Thompson. So this is basically all of David Thompson's regular collaborators getting together again. Roger Tankersley and David Thompson were the people who had did who had done Sniper Elite, and Trevor Benjamin has collaborated with David Thompson on a number of designs, most saliently on the Undaunted series. And this is a solo design being published by Salt and Peppa Games. I'm very glad that Salt and Peppa have a, a second stage in their career after early pop hits. I'm now being informed by the editor that I am wrong, and this is Salt and Pepper Games. I am now also being informed that we have no editor other than myself, and that I am a crazy person. So, Resist is a solo game about the Spanish Maquis. And the Spanish Maquis were basically anti-Franco freedom fighters that re-invaded Spain after having been exiled into France. So this is all post-World War II anti-fascist action. And the game is very simple but very satisfying because it's one of those games, not uncommon, whereby it's mostly about leveraging special abilities and triggering special attacks and mitigating what special abilities your opponents are going to trigger because you have a handful of freedom fighters and you have to go after a mission every round. If you fail two missions, you're done. 
You can also stop after any single mission and just do a score attack. There's also a scenario mode. There's a lot of flexibility uh, in terms of how you play. But whenever you attack a location, a whole bunch of soldiers get revealed. Each soldier has a special ability. The location has a special ability. And all of your marquee have two different special abilities. One if they're being covert, and one if they're going out, sometimes literally figuratively guns blazing. The trick is, if they do that, they're never coming back. There's a subtle deck-building element as well, where you can try to recruit new maquis and possibly to replenish the ranks of the people you've sent out in a, in a violent fashion. But the thing that really got to me was the art by Albert Montes, because each card you play, everything you do is a person. It is a specific named individual that has a fair degree of personality just by virtue of the effects they have and how they are portrayed graphically. And as a consequence... I would very frequently be myself in a position where I, I was holding on to cards like, oh yeah, their special ability, their overt special ability is just way too good to use. Am I really willing to kill this person? <laughs> Am I willing to send this person out knowing they're not going to come home? Oh, you've been good to me. But sorry, Manuel, you're not coming home. <laughs> and it's just, it, it really uh, made things bite, as they should. Games of this ilk, specifically in small scale where you can personalize the soldiers, I am all about. And generally speaking, if you look at a lot of the solo designs by David Thompson, a lot of it is about these small-scale engagements where the names of the individual soldiers, the personalities of the individuals involved, can take on substantial effect. Things like soldiers in postman's uniforms, things like Castle Itter, where these specific individuals take on a great deal of personality. But I, I shouldn't compare it too much to the Valiant Defense series because this is, as I say, a very straightforward quick card game in comparison. But the components are delightful. This Managing the special effects, the, the tension of deciding whether to neutralize this soldier's ability or this other soldier's ability, all the while wondering if you're going to have enough staff and uh, soldier power in, in the Maquis deck for the next challenge or for the next two challenges after that. A lot of great tense decisions, which is exactly to be expected. I, we have yet to encounter a subpar David Thompson design. And the previous work of Roger Tankersley on Sniper Elite was great, and Trevor Benjamin has also been uh, of consistent quality, so I had high expectations going to resist, but the art completely blew me away, and just the simple moment-to-moment -moment challenge of navigating these effects and navigating these thresholds. Uh, I found extremely compelling. I was very, very pleased with Resist, and I look forward to going back to it. The art really uh, gives me the feeling of like old Tintin art. For those who who know that genre, I'm surprised that that hasn't been used. I don't. I can't think of any board game that has used a style of art like that. Well, it's not entirely dissimilar from you know the the Belgian bande dessinée kind of style. It looked. It reminded me a tiny little bit in terms of humanizing armed conflict in a cartoony style. So there's a certain. This is a bit of a stretch comparison that can be made to the Grizzled. Different, different art style, but within the same broad genre. And I agree with you. I think this is a very compelling way to personalize individuals be precisely because one of the strengths of animation, even as compared to some photos, is that you can really have exaggerated facial effects that can really humanize and personalize somebody very effectively. Now, this is not always the case, but it is definitely something done to great effect here by Albert Montes. I'm looking forward to more of his work. Apparently, he did an adaptation of Slaughterhouse-Five. I'd be very curious to, to see if I can find that in an English translation. And this is the first foray of Salt and Pepper Games into their own game publishing. They've been distributing things in Spanish editions, and this is their efforts into publishing things on their own Steam. And uh, honestly, reaching out to David Thompson was probably a good call. <laughs> so, big, big fan of Resist. Thoroughly enjoyed it. This is a review copy that was sent to us by Salt and Pepper Games. We'll be going back to it soon. I got 
to return to The Adventures of Robin Hood. And this is sort of a, a family weight game. It, we've been talking a lot on the on the Discord about uh, games for children, and this is definitely one of them. It has like an advent calendar feel. You're popping up all these windows. There's this huge storybook, sort of choose your own adventure. Sometimes you'll get into, a, you'll you know move upon the situation. You sit, you'll have different choices, and you'll go to different parts of the book. Lots of interesting things to happen. There's also puzzles like. It'll, it'll give give you a mission and you can actually look at the board and it will be little hints of what you need to do. It's like you need to break. I uh, shouldn't say anything. Spoilers. <laughs> but anyway, they'll, they'll be Very little, conscientious hint, of your little hints that where you should go and doesn't like totally direct you. Lots of interesting things happening. Adventures of Robin, it's like a bag building type game. It's very interesting because there's all sorts of different things in the bag. They just pile everything in there that you're going to use for different uh, parts of the round. But they're all very distinct shapes. So when you reach in, you'll know what you're supposed to be pulling out. Say pull out a seal or pull out cubes or pull out a player action marker. How do you how do you get the seal into the bag? How do you coax them in with fish? Fish. Okay, yeah. yeah and you don't that. get too old, right? Because then it gets a little, yeah, a little yeah, sticky. Yeah. yeah, you don't want the things sticking together. It gets a little heavy too. One seal at a time. Otherwise, you might break. So the you're bag. the one. You're the expert on animals. You know yeah, about these things. There you go. This is designed by Michael Menzel and put out by Cosmos Games. Great little story game. Adventures, the Adventures of Robin Hood. Played some more games of indie darling Regicide. Now, I'd like to note that there are two kinds of people in this world, Walker: those who are obnoxious about their win count in Regicide, and those that aren't. And I firmly aspire to be in the latter group, despite the fact that I am besieged by people of the former group. But I would also note that there are two other kinds of people in the world, those that have won Regicide only once, and those that have won Regicide more than that. These are true facts, Mark. These are true facts. Even just at this table, maybe, there might be a sort of assortment of people that fall into no, that category. No, At this table, there is there is only one category in which we both fall. Oh, that's good. Good yeah. news. Good to hear. But I wouldn't brag about it. I'm not that kind of person. <laughs> I'm not that kind of... Regicide is designed by Badgers from Mars, Polly Rhymes, Luke Badger, and Andy Richdale. And in case you haven't noticed us ever talking about this before, if you haven't tried Regicide yet, you're probably within striking distance of a deck of cards. Go try Regicide. It's awesome. Regicide. I brought 51st State Master Set back to the table. It is a game sort of if you played Imperial Settlers, that's sort of what it was based off of. You're building this elaborate tableau. You're making distinct decisions on whether to build up your own tableau or slow down your opponent at in at the same time, giving you an advantage. It's not just this take that kind of action. You're actually getting benefit back. It's a game sort of like Gaia Project where you're trying to increase the length that you can stay in the round. You're increasing your resources, trying to get actions done where no one can stop you because everyone has passed. But that being said, it has an interesting mechanic of when you pass, you cannot be attacked. So it could be a, a strategy to pass early so you're not going to lose stuff. But the problem with passing is that you lose all of your resources. So lots of interesting things going on. We played with the Allies uh, expansion. They have all sorts of different expansions because in Fitzgerald State, you're going to you have their main deck and then you're going to add uh, one of the sort of, I guess, module decks. In. If you want to, you don't even have to. Well, the base game comes with just two standard modules that you can shuffle in, and uh, they're all great. In Allies, it introduces sort of uh, three sort of sub-factions that are all fighting each other, and you get benefits if you use, you know, tokens against other factions and stuff like that. I won't go too deeply into the 
base rules, but this is designed by Ignacy Trebchek and published by Portal Games. If you have a chance to play it, I would check out 51st State. Played a game called Swords Around the Throne. Swords Around the Throne is a grand strategic Napoleonic war game. So allow me to warn you, and I'll tell you the same thing that my mother told me when I asked her why she was so disappointed in me. Buckle up, Buttercup, this might go long. So, Grand Strategic Napoleonic is very much my bag. It's my probably my preferred flavor of wargaming. In part because that's a period of history I probably know better than a lot of the other Grand Strategic uh, form, and also... Uh, Grand Strategic World War II Wargaming tends to fall into a number of bugbears, most of them involving France, and others possibly involving Operation Sea Lion. But anyway, those are topics for another day. Swords Around the Throne is a design by Renaud Verlac. This is not his first attempt at Grand Strategic Napoleonic. In 2003, he published a game called Age of Napoleon by Phalanx, which was utterly gorgeous and a little bit obtuse. And so I approached this new design with a little bit of trepidation, because number one, it is self-published via Game Crafter, so I expected the graphical quality to take a bit of a hit, and it did, but mostly it leverages great historical portraits of famous men of the era, so the cards end up being surprisingly attractive, and surprisingly functional player aids, despite the fact that there are some, perhaps, verbal ambiguities transitioning from the player aid to the rulebook, so fair warning on that. And I was worried that it was going to replicate some of the thorniness, particularly with respect to diplomatic situations of Age of Napoleon and then pouring it into Swords Around the Throne. Uh, my fears, however, were completely blown away by the fact that very quickly into our game, we had an immediate understanding about the differences of the different diplomatic states that a country could be in, the difference between being a subjugated power or a power that is allied to you or a power that is your dominion that has different vulnerabilities and advantages. This is usually with respect to the French. The coalition, on the other hand, the English, they mostly just allied with people or subjugated them. The whole dominion aspect was an aspect of the Code Napoleon. All right, I should move on. So... Swords, again, Swords Around the Throne is a two-player version of Grand Strategic Napoleonic, which is probably, again, also my preferred way to do it. It's very hard to have someone say, okay, we're going to play a big consum now. You get to be Austria. You get to skip the first two turns because France just kicked you in the face real hard. One of the great aspects of historical wargaming is watching his, uh, semi-historical events unfold despite the fact that the rule systems don't force you there, but they organically redevelop. And that is exactly what happened. I played as the French. Uh, because amongst my American friends, that is very much the stereotype, despite the fact that in terms of heritage, it's probably more appropriate for me to play the English, but setting all that aside. And in 1805, France conquered Austria. In 1806, France conquered Prussia. In 1807, things started to get a little bit complicated in the Iberian Peninsula, and suddenly France was looking at Russia enviously, figuring, how am I going to make this work? It was great. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I think that the level of rules grit was just about perfect. There's a level of asymmetry with respect to how the card play works. It's a card-driven game, but at the end of the day, the cards just have some number of three different icons on them to provoke or respond to insurgency, to engage in military campaigning, or to engage in diplomacy. And a very simple resolution system that works more or less the same way for each of these procedures, allowing you to focus on the geographical challenges of the French of managing this huge sprawling empire of some people who really hate you and some people who love you but might get knife you anyway, versus the coalition who have to survive being militarily steamrolled by a vastly militarily superior adversary and bide their time and hope that diplomacy can win the day. Thoroughly, thoroughly exceptional design. I was blown away by how good Swords Around the Throne was. I came in with middling expectations, and I found that it was probably it's the best in class. I struggle to think of a better grand strategic Napoleonic war game. 
Better than War and Peace, better than Empires in Arms, certainly better than Age of Napoleon, better than Napoleonic War, second edition, the GMT uh, card-driven game. I really, really, really enjoyed it, and I would recommend you track it down on GameCrafter if that's the kind of game that interests you. I look forward to trying it again, this time possibly playing as the Coalition to see what can be done to reverse their rather catastrophic failures of this particular outing. Uh, but I, I'm optimistic. I mean, even if the balance is bad... Even if it turns out that it's uh, a, a cakewalk for the French, sometimes that's the kind of thing you have to accept with with war games. It's it's a delicate needle to thread, very much like how I talk about in World War II games. There's the issue of France in '39 and, and Sea Line. Sometimes it can be incredibly difficult to have the, a situation emerge quasi historically where the French dominate the continent for the first few years, but right around 1810 or so, there's the possibility of the coalition starting to make a comeback. That's the that's the glimmer of hope that we have. But our game ended in 1808, so it's it's tough to be certain. At any rate, Renaud Verlac has also done a number of other designs, which I now want to start tracking down. He actually published a very, very abstracted Grand Strategic World War I game with Hollandspiel, which sounds exactly like the kind of thing that I want to try. So, this is Swords Around the Throne by Renaud Verlac. If you have any interest in Grand Strategic Napoleonics, I suggest you check it out. Lastly for me, it's a game that I also didn't have very high expectations for. This is Wormholes designed by Peter McPherson and put out by AEG Games. I was very happily... Pleasantly well, surprised. Pleasantly surprised by this little gem of a game, Mark. I can't wait to show it to you. You're you're buzzing around the universe and you're uh, shuttling aliens all over the place. And it's nice, straightforward. You have this giant deck of planets and... Or I should say passengers. and they, it, But it's just a picture of the planet they want to go to. Ah, and so you have a hand of four cards, and you only have three little energy tokens, and that's three movement you can move on the map. And it's this giant hex grid. You say, well, that's awfully boring. You're going to move three spaces a turn. But no, you have this giant stack of wormholes. And there's two of every number. So as soon as you put out two number ones, they become active. And now you can, as a free action, move in between those two wormholes. And you can use other people's wormholes, other person's wormholes as well. You, they just get free victory points. And there's also map elements like the space cannon that will shoot you across the entire map <laughs> in a straight line. So everything, I love how they did it because everything is a free action except for moving one hex. And you get to do that three times during your turn. And you get to improve your hand once. You also have a draw cards chit that you'll turn over every turn. And you can turn over that chit at a planet where you're drawing cards. And if you happen to draw the planet that you're on, then it goes into the satellite sort of field. And then if at the, sp at the space station, if you draw cards, you have to draw cards from that field as opposed to the deck where you're at a planet. And so as soon as you get to the planet, you just drop the cards for that and they, they're worth two points each. And you play around until all of the planets have at least one wormhole on them because every whoever gets a wormhole on the planet first also gets a little bit of scoring tokens that they get to take in. It's just this very interesting sort of combo because by the end, it's like, because the board populates, it builds right, itself. Like right. Blue Lagoon, you're sort of seeding the board. And by the end of the game, you're going, okay, I move one, which uh, lets me teleport here. And I move one to this and I teleport here. And then I can move on to the space can and I shoot across. And meanwhile, you're, you know, you're adjacent to planets, you're ditching cards, and then you draw halfway through and then you drop off some more passengers. How well is the information load managed? Because I could easily imagine a situation like that where the board gets so cluttered, it becomes very difficult to visually identify good routes. 
I don't think so at all. The, your wormhole tokens are these giant wooden discs. Oh, good. Big numbers on them, and they're all colored for your, your, yours are colored in your, in your colors. And anyway, I didn't find Great. a problem. We only play a two player. I'm very interested to see what it plays like with more players because mm-hmm. it'll be just that much more busy and that much more right. intricate puzzles. But, and, and all of the map pieces are double sided. So there's a lot more board elements on the other side than just the space cannon. There's like black holes and all other weird nebula and stuff that will help you move around the board. When you go through the black hole, do you find your dead father? No. Okay. You flip over a card off the top of the deck and you just whoop, appear at that planet. <laughs> Can't wait. It's going to be hilarious. That strikes me as the kind of game that could strike me as a pleasant combo experience. And indeed, the simplicity of the rules immediately appeal to me. Or it could be that Wormholes triggers my spatial puzzle problems, in which case I might start getting a headache. We'll see. I'm curious. It's great. I think it's just very much like our feature game, just super easy and streamlined to teach. And Spoilers. And you'll you'll uh, get into the game immediately. Wormholes. Wormholes. Finally, I get to play Blitz Bowl, specifically Season 2. Now, Blood Bowl is a venerable Games Workshop offering, which is a fantasy game of American-style football. It is famous for having an illegal procedure rule and for taking roughly three hours as you carefully puzzle out the order in which your linemen try to tackle people. Blitz Bowl, on the other hand, is a very stripped-down version as designed by James M. Hewitt. James M. Hewitt, for those who remember, is half of Needy Cat Games, and along with Sophie Williams, designed the shockingly excellent Hellboy board game, as well as a game called League of Infamy, which I really want to try, but haven't been able to track down yet. James Hewitt used to work in-house for Games Workshop, and now he works with Sophie Williams and Needy Cat. And James Hewitt is an excellent game designer, and so I, I've been meaning to try Blitz Bowl for some time. There are now three seasons of Blitz Bowl that are available. I believe they're semi-exclusively through Barnes & Noble in the United States. And they differ primarily in terms of which teams come in the box. Humans versus Orcs, Humans versus Skaven, or Humans versus Dwarves, as in the case of Season 2. Uh, this was okay because my gaming opponent Josephus is, shall we say, pro-dwarf, and so we got to naturally sort into our racial preferences. And the way that Blitz Bowl simplifies the system is basically just by, first of all, shrinking the pitch, shrinking the number of players, simplifying the threat zones, and giving you a much more flexible action selection mechanism, whereby on every turn you get to do three actions, and the only restriction is the same player cannot do the same action more than once. But there are different actions you can do based on whether they they are open or whether they are adjacent to an opposing player, which is called marked. For example, the run action where they move their full movement allowance, they cannot at any point be marked during this move. Whereas there's a separate action specifically called mark where they move two spaces and then must end next to an opponent. On top of this, you know, you can, of course, if you wanted to throw a a football uh, or, of course, you could just try to grind their faces into the dirt. The main way that the pace is accelerated, though, on top of that, is that there are all these challenge cards, which are a tableau of three cards that present specific goals. Some of them relate to actually scoring touchdowns, but some of them are score this card if you knock someone down, score this card if you have at least three opposing figures marked by at least two of your figures, things like that. So it gives you short-term goals when you can't quite see how you can set up for a touchdown in the context of a given turn. 
so you re- you avoid sometimes the quagmire situations that you end up with in both Blood Bowl and sometimes even, dare I say it, in American or Canadian style football where there's a turnover after turnover after turnover. And it just becomes incredibly fast moving. I don't know if they've shaved off the primary appeal for c- d- devoted Blood Bowl players. If you're deep into Blood Bowl and you love Blood Bowl, this is probably too simple for you now, precisely because of the fact that you don't have this intricate spatial puzzle of tallying up modifiers and tackling in the right order. It's just much more open and free. And sometimes, just to give you a sense of how wild things can get, you're not limited to one ball ball being on the pitch. If it's the case that at the end of a player's turn, they haven't scored anything, the crowd gets bored and another ball spawns. (laughs) That makes sense. Fair enough. (laughs) And can one really criticize them? So... For me, I thought it was a pleasant 30 minutes-ish tactical thing. We're talking about something that's probably sub-Warhammer Underworlds in terms of its complexity and in-depthness. There are tacked-on league rules, which apparently don't work too terribly well. And that was also one of the early appeals of Blood Bowl, the fact that you could keep running a league. So this is a very clever, self-contained tactical package. Now, the trick is that expanding it is half-trivial and half-onerous because... It comes with two full teams, and in Blitz Bowl, teams are roughly six figures. In the, I don't mean in terms of cost. I mean six literal figures. When talking about Games Workshop, you have to be clear about these things. The cards for a bunch of other teams are included in the box. All you need to do to play those teams, other than the figures, are already there. To get the figures for those teams, though, you're expected to buy a full Blood Bowl team which is considerably more than six individual figures. So it's a strange kind of, if you're willing to proxy, the world is your oyster. If you'd rather not proxy, prepare to buy at least twice as many figures as you actually need. So it's as our products go, it's in a strange kind of place. This might be one of those things where they expect you to graduate to the quote-unquote grown-up version later on, which is unfortunate because I think if this had been supported as an actual product line rather than, hey, Barnes & Noble, sell this, you could have had some really interesting development on top of it. As it is, it's kind of neither hide nor hair. It's kind of in a middle awkward position. I would happily play Blitz Bowl. I would happily play other teams and other seasons. I don't know if I'd go out and get other boxed set- sets because, again, there's a lot of redundancy there. And I certainly wouldn't be willing to go buy other actual teams and have to assemble and paint them and, and do all, all that kind of stuff. So as I say, it's kind of a dead ender as far as I'm concerned, which is unfortunate because, as I say, James M. Hewitt is very clever. And I like a lot of what he has done with changing Blood Bowl into Blitz Bowl. I'm actually be kind of curious to see what he would do to a lot of other stodgy Games Workshop products. But then again, I repeat myself, which is to say, what he'd do to any Games Workshop product. Do they have all that uh, sort of seasonal things and skills for all your players and not to that level they're very very basic coach improvements you can get uh you don't track individual stats for players there's no possibility of career ending injuries or them getting individual bennies or things like that there's asymmetry amongst the different players and indeed again one of the ways that it's been simplified if a player gets knocked down and gets injured they just go back to the dugout that's it they don't get removed permanently and so there's a constant cycle in and out of of players which keeps the game dynamic so Sounds good. I really like how they changed up with like the meaning of marked means. I always thought the meaning of marked mean like if you're a parent and you're so disappointed in your child that you can't speak means that you're marked. That's Blood Bowl Season 2 designed by James M. Hewitt Games Workshop. And those are the games we played this week. Now on to the news and why it doesn't matter. This episode is brought to you by the Spring Cleaning Champions, Manscaped. This season, make sure to groom your carpets and the drapes with the leaders in below-the-waist grooming. Clear out that winter bush with Manscaped's Lawnmower 5.0 and watch your confidence bloom like the springtime flowers. Embrace the season and join the 10 million men worldwide. 
who trust Manscaped with our special offer. Go to manscaped.com and use code SOWRONGGAMES for 20% off plus free shipping. Whether you're looking to craft your signature look or clean up that neckline, Manscaped has the right tools for the job. Introducing the season's champ, the Lawnmower 5.0 Ultra. It features two interchangeable next-gen skin-safe blade heads, dual LED spotlights, and sleevers rejoice, it's waterproof and comes with a swank carrying case. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code SOWRONGGAMES at manscaped.com. That's 20% off and free shipping with the code SOWRONGGAMES at manscaped.com. Nothing like a little spring cleaning in your pants. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Mark Shucks is in a couple of weeks. It's at the end of September, going into October. And we will be there. We will be up on stage for two different events on Saturday. So if you're going to be at Shucks, come and check us out. Literature news. <laughs> we were interviewed over a year ago by Gordon Kalea, who is a scholar of game design in Malta and also the designer of Vengeance, Vengeance, Roll and Fight, the upcoming Phage Forge, as well as Excavation Earth and other designs. Well, the fruits of, of that research, as well as a lot of other research, is finally ready. The, the book is called Unboxed, Board Game Experience and Design. Written, as I say, by Gordon Kalea, published by MIT Press, and it will be available on October 4th. We have an advanced reader copy. I have not yet finished the book, but so far it has not overused words with Ludo as the prefix. And it has managed to cobble together the various gruntings and inane ramblings that we that we gave to Gordon into something perhaps vaguely resembling words. So there's that. Unboxed by Gordon Kalea. Mark, there's going to be a pandemic everything. Apparently, Star Wars... The Clone Wars pandemic version coming out by Z-Man Games. Oh, okay. Yeah. Maybe they'll eventually get to a license I care about. Yeah, one day. <laughs> It'll be just like Monopoly. I'm sure you'll get whatever you're looking for. I don't know about that. There's a long way to go before that. <laughs> so Matt Gertz is one of my favorite game designers. Perhaps his least successful or at least least appreciated design was Transatlantic. And for a while, he was working on Transatlantic 2, trying to address some of the initial concerns about the game. One of the criticisms of Transatlantic is that although it was very historically situated by featuring 50 historical steam and other uh, transport ships with full names and the pictures and their tonnage and when they first uh, sailed and, and so forth, which is great for boat nerds. I'm not a boat nerd. One of the criticisms was there was no map. So it was abstracted, and yes, they transported things, but they didn't actually, you know, visibly sail. And so despite the fact it was called Transatlantic, there was no Atlantic to, you know, trans. 
So, uh, Transatlantic 2 eventually spiraled out of control as a design project, and now it is no longer Transatlantic 2, but now called Crossing Oceans, because it is now sufficiently distanced from Transatlantic that it is an entirely new game. It is offering you a map. It has resurrected the Rondell, because Matt Gertz is the master of the Rondell, and his games featuring the Rondell have been universally excellent, which is not to say that it's a necessary or sufficient condition. I, for one, am looking very much forward to Crossing Oceans. Mark, the winners of the International Gaming Awards have been announced. There's only three categories, so it won't take long to go through them. Multiplayer was Carnegie by Xavier George and Quinted Games. The best two-player game was Arc Nova, designed by Mathis Wiggy and put out by Futerspiel. And the best solo game was Cascadia by Randy Flynn and Flatout Games. Congratulations to all the winners. As always, it is a supreme honor to be on the IGA jury. Agreed. And lastly for me, we don't have enough magic. We have 40K Magic the Gathering. Now we're going to have Disney Lorcana, Mark. What? Yes. Lorcana. Yes. Well, it's it's Disney characters in a magical realm so they can cast spells and... Is this actually Magic the Gathering or is this no, Magic no, no, Knockoff? No, it's Magic Knockoff. Okay. Uh, Disney takes your money. Because <laughs> uh, it's going to be put away Ravensburger. So that's a good sort of sort of vibe at the beginning. Because they've done a number of very good licensed products, it's true. And they've done some Disney stuff. Uh, Villainous, I've yet to play it, but I heard it's got good buzz and, and is v- enjoyed by many people. Uh, Lorcana is going to be designed by Ryan Miller and Steve Warner. And uh, not much is known about it yet, whether they're going to have boosters or... But they have said there's going to be rarity in cards and there's going to be... Oh, great. And <laughs> the, art, the art looks very interesting. It's just not stills from the billions of... Disney, this is all sort of new art with different themes and visions. It looks very interesting so far. I'm sure I will purchase a deck and give it a try, I'm sure. I didn't know you were a big Disney fan. No, but I'm a good big Magic the Gathering used to be player. So (laughs) I always get, you know, when Keyforge came out, I wanted to try it. I also have Soul Fusion. I just enjoy that that type of dueling game. Sure. And that is the news and why it doesn't matter. Now on to our feature game of the week, which is Capital Lux 2 Generations. Capital Lux 2 Generations was designed by Eilif Svensson and Christian Amundsman Osby and was published in a por- by Aporta Games, their own company, in 2020. It is the sequel to Capital Lux, fancy that, which was published by Aporta Games, fancy that, in 2016. There are also other versions of Capital Lux 2, specifically Capital Lux 2 Pocket, which in many ways is much more similar to the first Capital Lux, in that Capital Lux and Capital Lux 2 Pocket have only four special powers that you play with at any given time, whereas Capital X2 Generation has four different versions of each of those four special powers, but then again, I anticipate myself. Eilis Svensson and Christian Edmondsman-Osby have collaborated before on Santa Maria and The Magnificent, as well as the upcoming Revive, which is being released at Spiel at Essen, which we're very much looking forward to in conjunction with Helga Meissner and Anna Varmlund. Ostby himself solo published the Escape series, the real-time dice-rolling game, Curse of the Temple. There's also the zombie version and so forth. So they've collaborated a fair bit. They also have a fair uh, publishing pedigree independently. And I, for one, have been a huge, huge fan of The Magnificent, as well as uh, a big fan of some of the Escape variants. And I think that when they come together, magic happens. Walker, why don't you give us an unhelpful summary about what one does in Capital X2 Generations? Well, 
will do. Capital Lux 2 Generations was a Kickstarter. Just so people know, if you want to look up the whole plan, you'll see it up on the Kickstarter page. And after a player plays a card in Capital Lux 2, you have to wait a moment for all the cursing and yelling <laughs> to die down. You want interaction in card games while well, there's multiple levels. There's hate drafting, there's area control, there's bluffing, there's sort of take that special powers. This is all wrapped up into a 30-minute card game that is easy to generalize. Quick setup. Four districts. Every player has a player sheet, and there's a four districts in the middle. They're all the same, all the same four colors. There's three rounds, and in those three rounds, you're going to deal out from a 100-card deck, which is 25 of each color. The cards are valued 2 to 6. Everyone's going to get 6 cards, and then you draft them 2 at a time. When it's your turn, you're going to go in player order. You have 2 options. You're going to play a card to the capital, which is going to trigger special powers or increase the threshold of that particular district. Or you're going to play to your own personal board, which is going to increase your endgame scoring. Or at the end of the round, there's going to be a who has the most cards in each district sort of uh, a winner who's going to get a scoring card from the capital district. So as soon as a player has no more cards in their hand for that round, every other player gets one more turn, and then you have to dump any cards that you have left into your own player area. You're going to check each district in the capital for busting. So if the values of the capital are less than what people have on their player boards, they lose all the cards in that one district. And whoever has the highest number in those districts is going to be able to take the highest card from the capital district, goes into a scoring pile. You do that for three rounds. Whoever has the most cards in their personal board, plus the scoring cards that they've, you know, picked up during the game, whoever has the most points is going to be the winner. Walker has explained about 90% of the rules. Uh, because the game is that straightforward. And I would point out one minor emendation to your unhelpful summary about how when someone plays a card, there's immediate cursing. And I just mentioned this because it's one thing that I find quite striking. And it, it's it's a bit of a downside, but it's not uh, particularly tedious. The amount of arithmetic you have to do in a game of Capital X2 Generation, significant. So after someone plays a card, sometimes the reaction is immediate. And sometimes it's way like, okay, no, they went from four and two and three and five. Okay, no. Oh, crap! <laughs> Now the number's all wrong. <laughs> so there's a bit of a pause as people count in their head. That's true. Let's recount for the fifth time how many cards they have in their district. Yeah. It, it, look, it's not it's not especially tedious. If you find the process of adding together numbers that vary in value from two to six, you know, there's four-ish values usually by the end of the game, maybe five or six for the particularly heavily supported suits. If you find that process incredibly unpleasant and tedious, this is a, this is a hard pass. As far as, as, as far as I can recommend. I just stress that because for me, it's the biggest downside to what is other, otherwise a relentlessly delightful and engaging card game. Yeah. What a treat this game has been. So it is delight because there's so many decisions to make, even at the very beginning when you're drafting cards, because every game has a special power for every, all the four districts. And so you're deciding as you're drafting, what do I need to score the districts that it at the beginning of the game, it's like, well, what colors am I going to go for? Or what do I have in my hand for the values? What special abilities do I want to trigger this turn? And this is just in the initial draft. And when do you want to trigger them? Because the the the, the timing considerations can be considerable. It is not infrequent that by virtue of the different special powers that are at play, the round will end considerably sooner than you want it to. And you are obliged to play all your remaining cards out to your own personal tableau. But as we identified... 
if your personal tableau exceeds the value of any of the di- of the relevant district, they all go away. But every card you do manage to keep in your tableau is points to be scored at the end of the game. That element of risk, that element of pushing your luck even, especially since many of the powers that give you new cards do so randomly, it's a, a delightful little tension and one that I f- fully appreciate. Especially since it's the kind of thing that you can easily take into consideration. Because if, if my hand is twice the size of yours, I mean, that, that's exaggeration, you're not going to see that. I know that I'll have all the time in the world to play cards in front of me. In fact, I'll be obliged to. But I have to be very careful about which special powers I want to trigger and when. Those are the front-loaded ones. But the sooner I do it, the more information I give to my opponents, the more latitude I give them to score their own cards in front of them. Anyway, this is just one of the examples yeah. of, of, of the kind of trade-offs you have to make in a game of Capital Lux 2. Yeah, that's the point I made in one of my statements here, too, is it's, it's really one of those games that you wish you could just pass. <laughs> right. Where you want the, the, <laughs> the game state to develop a little bit. Yeah. So you can, so, I don't, don't want to commit. Yeah, you don't want to sh- you show your hand. You, yeah. you, know, you don't want to like commit somewhere and, and and people say, well, we'll just move all those cards out of the capital, and now you're going to bust for sure. Yeah. That type of thing. Which is a common feature of Reiner Knizia card games as well. It doesn't feel a lot like a Knizia design, but in that sense, I think one of the one of the great features of tense card games often is the desperate desire to pass. And then, like you said, with the picking up of the extra cards, because uh, like we said, there's all sorts of different special abilities you're going to get every game, and we found... Getting the more cards is awfully powerful, but exactly like you said, you have to be very careful. Because powerful, came, but risky. It came up very often in our games where near the end of the round, if you draw a card and it just happens to be the wrong card and it happened twice in two different games, <laughs> that person busted out of a huge mm. district. And and so, like you said, you have to get those cards early, know when to play. And when you get right down to the end, you sort of, you're mathing it all out. If... If I put it into my own district, I'm going to bust. If I put it onto the capital, then and then somebody else is not going to bust. But you have to put it somewhere. Yes. You, you are forced to play it. And that kind of amazing. Yes. So let's talk about some of the special powers. Some of them are very straightforward, as we said. Uh, one of them is just draw a card from the deck. Now you have more cards in the deck. Then there are some variations on that, where you draw a card from a face-up deck that's comparable to the other cards, but it's a specialized set of components. My personal favorite are some of the ones that are just kind of wacky and almost outre. It's just like, we've decided that we're going to have new components that are just for this power. It's the kind of thing that if it were loaded in plastic, I would I would criticize it for being bloated and, and having excess components. But it's all just card stock and cardboard, really, at the end of the day. So they're like, okay, we're going to have this new board and these new components, all the player colors, just for this one power among 16 yeah. that you may or may not draft. Yeah, exactly. I was going to bring that up, too. It's like, now bring out the sideboard. Yeah. Uh, now everyone gets a rocket. And yeah, now there's like a little mini game going on. I, 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 yeah, you could tell I was talking about the rocket. I love yeah. the rocket. The yeah. rocket board, I think, is my favorite board. It's just this other mechanism whereby if you play a card to the central district, you just get to advance your rocket and you'll get some benefit based on where your rocket is. They're all really simple. All the special powers are very, very straightforward, which is great because otherwise it, would, it could easily get cumbersome and people forgetting how they work and the intricacies of how they might interact with each other and ultimately at the setup of every game you have to give everyone the rundown of what all those four special powers do so that could easily become difficult you know we love root but explaining how root works every time it's like okay your faction breaks the rules like this and it's just a separate rules explanation here's just a delightful little sometimes it's a delightful little thing it's like oh here are these tiles we'll be using this set of tiles today but it all fits in the box and it doesn't sprawl too much the setup is always painless so I, I I quite like it, actually, when at least one or two of the powers are like, bust out this other weird component that only works with this variant. 
Just so. And and how some of the special powers sort of work off of each other. I know in the rule book they have like certain sets that you can use. Right. And they have a, a, a starting baby baby. Well, it's not set. for baby babies. No, it's, no, it's, but it's just what we say. It's. <laughs> I know it's not true, but it's the lie we repeat, so it's okay. Exactly. It's it's the set that you're going to find in it's it's different from the set that you're going to find in Capital X one, but it's exact it, it's similar and a lot of the powers are the uh, some of the powers are the same, and it's exactly the same set that you're going to find in Capital X two Pocket. Capital X two Pocket has all the so called A abilities, whereas in Capital X two Generations you have the B C and D abilities in each of the four colors, and that's even setting aside the expansions to Capital X two that were set as promos. I haven't even touched those yet, but they too involve other components just just for the sake of doing it because they can yeah and and i know we said there's tons of powers but they've done a great job of sort of categorizing them yes like the pink one is always has to do with moving cards around you know inside the tableau and the the yellow powers always have something to do with the coins and so on and so forth so it sort of helps you out figuring out what all of these powers do right the one criticism that I might have about the modularity, again, I love the excess. For, for somehow they manage to do a small box game that reeks of excess, and that's a, <laughs> that's a bit of a tightrope to walk. I don't ever really feel, at least I haven't really felt in any of my configurations, and I wonder if you have a, uh, a different opinion, where I really felt like the different special powers were speaking to each other in a particularly novel way. Now you mentioned that the color codings, generally speaking, have a consistency to them. And so there's some kind of interaction there. But I never really felt like when playing with, you know, power A, B, A, D, where it's like, yeah, that's the one where the A blue really interacts with the D pink in a really supremely cool way. Eh, I, this is not to say they felt samey, but I didn't really feel that they were they were, they were were interlocking in a particularly in-depth way, if that makes any sense. Yeah, I do. There was one in the very last game we played. There was the pink that lets you move the lowest card uh, of a certain district into uh, a district of your choice. And there was the blue power, which were sort of the rebels, which lets you, you know, uh, play rebels uh, into where the red flag was. And if you played into blue, you got to move the flag to whatever column you want. And the green lets you draw more cards. So this interaction of picking up the lowest cards with the pink player, moving the red flag over to, you know, the green slot so you could play more cards in there, and this sort of combo between those three oh, I see. that okay. got you more cards. It was sure. very, I found it very interesting. Now, I might, I should stress, have this impression uh, partially by virtue of my ineptitude with the game. I've played Capital X Two Generations a bunch. I think I've usually come in last place. Uh, <laughs> this is true of a lot of really simple card games that I adore. I feel like the last time I really uh, uh, put in this caveat was when we were talking about Rift Force, a game that I think I consistently lose by a large margin against no matter whom I'm playing, regardless of their facility with games in general. And I, look, I love pulling the levers. I love exploring how the special powers work. Uh, I'm just suggesting that my inability to see them interact in a particularly cool way might just be because I'm so bad at the game. Well, apparently, Mark, there's 256 different configurations. Oh, well, someone so, can do math. So okay. I'm, so I'm sure. No, what? Tell me more, Professor. It, it was on the Kickstarter page. Oh, okay. <laughs> so I wouldn't be able to do the math. <laughs> so there's 256 <laughs> different possible combos. So was, yeah. we'll get through a few of them and we'll figure out some good ones. <laughs> no, no, no. They're all, look, I'm not saying that they're not no, good. I'm, I've tried the, the, you know, quad A, quad B, quad C, quad D. I've also tried random configurations. I've also tried just picking one semi at random. It's like, oh, I haven't played with that one in a while. Let's pull that one. And 
usually I try not to rest too much on the rocket ship because I do like the rocket ship. So I've, I've tried a whole bunch of different ways to play Capital X Two Generations. I've enjoyed all of them, and by the same token, just in the same way that I haven't ever really felt like a couple were were, were clicking together in a novel way. I've never felt any of them were at cross purposes or even remotely degenerate. Or oh, by virtue of this power being A and this power being C, C is not particularly useful because A is just better. Uh, so I mean that that is the corollary. That's the benefit to whatever mild criticism I might, I might have had. Agreed. There's one one other decision that I sort of skipped over by accident. It's the fact that when we said that if you have the most of a particular district at the end of a round, you're going to be able to take a scoring card out of the capital row of that particular district, the highest one, because it's going to go right into your score pile. So while you're playing that round, figuring out how to seed yes. that capital district with a high card because you think you're going to win it and when to play it or how to play it. A number of times. Great. This, again, is is one of the manifestations of how bad I am at Capital X2 Generations. I have fought a hard-fought victory in terms of winning majority in a particular suit only to score a three because I hadn't noticed. I was too busy trying to win the thing, and then I'm like, oh, and my benefit for winning is the highest card of the suit, which is a three. Great. Hooray. <laughs> Hooray for me. Yes. And the art is fantastic. The the theme, Moria, yeah. the theme is very well very much pasted on. But in some dystopian cases dystopian sci-fi dystopian, casts running a city, yeah. Yeah. But it sometimes it has that feeling, you know, it, like getting into a rocket ship. Exactly. Getting into a rocket ship. <laughs> has a solo mode that uh, from what I've read, I I haven't tried it myself, but from what I've read works very well. I played the solo mode. I th- I found it surprisingly cute. Oh, there we go. One last thing I want to stress about Capital X 2 Generations is the draft, because there are very much elements of hate drafting. You know, you look over at your neighbor, you're the one who's fighting with them over yellow, so you keep the yellow card for yourself, and then realize, of course, sometimes halfway through the round, it's like, oh, wait, now I'm going to (laughs) bust. Things like that. But mostly what I find particularly useful is Capital X 2 has a, a lot of randomness in it, because, you know, it's a big, fat deck, you're not going to see all of it, they range from two to six. And you don't know what's going to come out over a course of a given round unless you have the draft. And that's one of the primary benefits I, I, I see to the draft. It's giving you some knowledge of what your opponents can play. You'll have a general sense that the person that downwind of you is really strong in green. Or a general sense that the person who's upwind of you doesn't care about pink. And that is, that's the kind of knowledge that really helps temper what could otherwise be a far more random affair than it is. Yeah, and on the other, I should say on the other side, but after the fact as well, is that there's so many ways you can manipulate your cards. Because it even happened in one oh, of sure. our, in our games where uh, I was given four pinks. So I handed all four of those pinks to the next player. And then on the next hand I got, there was two pinks. So I then handed the two pinks off to the next player as well. So he was definitely having four of his six cards if he didn't just happen to draft a pink in the first round and the way that he manipulated those cards into other slots and doing other abilities was very interesting to watch. Well, that's the thing about pink. Again, the pink powers are primarily about moving things around. So if you're going to be deep in one suit, pink will give you more flexibility than say yellow. Yeah. If you're deep in yellow, you'll probably be drowning in coins and that's all well and good. You know, you get a certain flavor of what the different suits do, but yeah, it's, it's what I find uh, interesting about the draft is not just the ability to subtly control what your opponents have and what you have. It, for me, the primary note of interest is getting a sense of what's in play in this given round. Because again, without that, I think there would be far, far too much variance. And that's all I have to say about Capital Lux 2. Fantastic game. It's a joy to play. It was a 
nice gem to find. I'm so glad I picked it up and that it will be in my collection for years to come. It's a great super filler. It's a relatively small box, taught quickly, played quickly, but you really feel like you're getting a lot of quality decisions. Uh, I was actually introduced to this game by Eric Royce. This is the uh, part where we name drop of the episode of So Very Wrong About Games. I was, uh, you know, talking casually with famed, renowned game oh. designer, our Eric Royce. Oh, do uh, tell. I'm, I'm a friend. I call him our Eric. Uh, uh. You know, it's, 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 you know, it's a sign of our intimacy that, uh, that I call him our, I don't call him Eric. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just joking. You say yo dog. Yeah. No, it was it was one of those instances where it had kind of fallen under my radar, which a lot of designs, for some reason, of Eilis Fenson and Christian M. Osby. Like, I still haven't tried Santa Maria. I really should. It looks like, aside from the colonialist trappings, like something I would really enjoy. But a lot of the Aporta games, a lot of their designs have fallen under the radar. But whenever I've tried something they've done, I've thoroughly enjoyed it. So when Eric pulled it off his shelf and said, Mark, you haven't tried this, I really think that you would enjoy it. And then it's something as as clever and amazing as Capital X Two Generations. It was the highest possible compliment, and uh, I'm very very glad that he he brought it to my attention, and that I was able to show it to you. You being Michael Walker, an award winning podcaster. This is the part of this episode where we name drop. Ooh, <laughs> does it my. count? If, does it count if you're name dropping the uh, the name of someone who's Not, sitting across now that that nobody knows about? Yeah, not I, really. I failed at name dropping. Yeah, a little bit. <sighs> I, Mark Bigney, award-winning podcaster, failed at name drop. Wait, no, that doesn't work. <laughs> no, either. that's... That. Well, that's going to do it for this week for So Very Wrong About Games. We're going to workshop that. Thank you very, very much for joining us. If you'd like to get in touch with us, drop the names of any famous people you know, you can find our contact information at sowronggames.com slash contact. We read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we can. Thanks again for choosing to spend time with us. I apologize for your rash decision, and we hope to see you again soon. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.